God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. And it's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant, right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, over, over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers. And the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other. And we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Opening. I'm Rick Pitcock, and in this episode, we're going to be having part three of my conversation with Wendell Griffin, who is a U.S. Circuit judge and a pastor. And uh, if you haven't listened to the first two parts of the conversation, I definitely encourage you to go check that out. And just as a reminder, this was not originally recorded as a podcast. It was just a conversation that he and I had during a fellowship that I was doing with Baptist News Global. So keep that in mind. And um, before we get into that, though, I wanted to uh, just mention a couple things here real quick. So I have a couple articles recently that have come out over the last couple weeks. One is, what has John MacArthur actually said about race, slavery, and the curse of Ham? And then the other one is called, There's a Straight Line from Eugenics to Biblical Family Values to White Supremacy and the Anti-Abortion Movement. And these two articles have caused a bit of a stir. Uh, the, the one on John MacArthur ended up creating a, a bit of a national conversation about John MacArthur's views on race. And it was pretty eye-opening. I, I went through his, his website and got a, a lot of quotes from sermons and from books, and um, it was really uh, a daunting to just see how he used the Bible to justify white supremacy and to defend slavery. 
some of those uh, quotes you've heard here on the podcast, but I definitely encourage you to check that article out. It was, it was an article that I actually got a lot of positive feedback from conservative evangelicals as well, who differ from MacArthur on a number of things. And I, so I think there's a, a growing awareness of some of the danger in MacArthur's theology, and I'm very thankful for, for that. So that's that article. The, the other one about eugenics was, was quite interesting because we had the, we've had the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and evangelicals are trying to figure out how they're going to respond to this. And so one, you know, there, there are different ways they're responding. I cover some of the ways that I've seen them recommending, and then I look very specifically at how adoption and education have been priorities that have grown within evangelical contexts that were actually formed through, um, through white supremacy and through eugenics. And so I trace that going back through James Dobson uh, and, and going back even into the 19th century. So definitely recommend looking at that. Um, just to be clear, I'm not in that, I'm not trying to demonize adoption. I'm not trying to demonize educating your kids. I'm, I'm simply saying that if you're going to do those things within those evangelical contexts, you need to have some awareness of how the big players in some of those worlds have been influenced through the over the last century by white supremacy. So those are, those are two articles that you'll find. And then also I've got my third single out now that I released. I, I do music under the, I produce music under the artist's name Provoke Wonder. And so my first two singles this year were called Dear Church and Go Be Free. And then this one is called An Infinite Mystery. And if you're, if you're looking for a song that gives a vision for how I see spirituality and how I can even see Christian theology developing in a healthy way and, and not having to deal with a lot of this nonsense that, that we have to deal with on a regular basis, um, I definitely recommend checking out that song. And I think it will, will really resonate with you. And you know, from, from a place of a relationship with the all and from a place that that acknowledges the exile that we feel but also that that appreciates the presence that we do have and in our bodies and amongst the cosmos and, and with each other so I think that song will really resonate with you and then before we do the the interview today before I play that I did want to mention that um, this this conversation was recorded a while ago, and so if you'd like to hear Wendell Griffin's thoughts on some of the more current cases, such as the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the case about prayer at public school football games, then he has another article that he that he just wrote for Baptist News Global called "The U.S. Supreme Court in a Four-Letter Word: Bork," and. I highly recommend taking a look at that article. It'll give you his thoughts on some of the more current events. But in the meantime, here is my conversation with Wendell Griffin. And then in our next episode, we'll be going back to discussing some of our articles. 
And I do think you feel that, that, that anger is necessary. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like maybe like part of liberation is freedom from oppression, but another part is freedom towards wholeness? Do you feel like maybe right now we're more in a season of until we admit the oppression, we're just going to be in a season of having to face the oppression until evangelicals are willing to admit that. And we can't really get toward the wholeness quite yet until we're re ready to deal with the, the oppression that we've caused. I'm going to say something that probably will seem sacrilegious. I believe that God is going to have to save the world from evangelical Christianity before the world can be saved because evangelical Christianity has been complicit in and with so much of the oppression in the world. And what we are going to see is the prophetic expression of the religion of Jesus. Being more and more challenged to confront the heresies of evangelical Christianity in order for the gospel of Jesus to be accepted as real. You left independent Baptist life. I discontinued calling myself a Christian. I call myself a follower of Jesus. The congregation I lead is Baptist in its polity and Baptist in its notion of the freedoms. Uh, but it does not identify with Baptist orthodoxy in the real, in, in the traditional Baptist sense. Uh, we're not part of a, a majority Baptist, Black Baptist tradition. We, we discontinued affiliation with the National Baptist Convention. Uh, we have more of, we were partly, partially for a while affiliated with the Cooperative Baptists, but because the Cooperative Baptists were so double-minded when it came to, and, and quite frankly, in my view, insincere when it came to LGBTQ inclusion with their so-called Illumination Project, I, would, I became disenchanted with that. And so, the prophetic notion of expression of faith, before we begin to talk about the way power is misused, the way wealth is misused, the way wealth is worshipped by people of faith, and particularly by organized religion, by evangelical Christians, how mammon has truly become God, uh, 
and uh, the ABCs of faith for our attendance, buildings, and cash. <laughs> uh, we are going to see more and more of the, the challenge being for people of prophetic faith to say, part of what's wrong with the world is that we bless stuff that God curses and we're cursing stuff that God blesses. God blesses inclusion. God blesses hospitality. God blesses honesty. God blesses humility. God loves the people who struggle. God loves people who are merciful and kind. And God curses haughtiness and arrogance and bigotry and hatefulness and cruelty and viciousness. But we've blessed every war we could ever fight as long as we could pray over it. <laughs> and we have blessed every rich thing that we get as long as we get a tithe from it. And we've not asked ourselves, what's the relationship? between religious tolerance of environmental devastation and cancer clusters along the Gulf Coast or climate change, or the use, the, the loss of what, lowering of water tables in the West. We, we haven't asked those hard questions. And more and more people of your age are forcing us to do that kind of thinking. But they're doing it from a prophetic mindset as opposed to from the traditional evangelical mindset because they found that when they go through the evangelical approach, the more the focus is on getting folks into the church building so they can get bigger buildings and have bigger campaigns and put up new schools in the, in the, in the schools where we can, we can train minds to believe in religious nationalism and put a big flag in front of the church so we can pray over the next war mm -hmm. and, and bless the next Walmart. Am I making sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, we have, we have become, we have, we have come to the point where the religion of Jesus became better known for blessing Wall Street and the Pentagon than blessing workers and peacemakers. 
And so the religion of the the religion of the immigrant Palestinian rabbi who was murdered by an empire has turned to a religion of people that glorify capital punishment, lionize police, even if they're abusive and homicidal, sacralize wealth, and disparage people who are poor and needing asylum from war and violence and cruelty and hunger and disease. We do God an injustice if we don't write about this. Mm -hmm. And we do our brothers and sisters in the faith and justice, if we do not ask them to think theologically about this and ask them, is this truly faithful to the lesson of God that we have been handed down through the prophets and from Jesus? I think that's that's our calling, and that's a good that's a good calling to have. It's also a, it's also a, a hard calling to have, because mm-hmm. as James Cone, as James Cone said, well, it's a hard calling to have until you do what James Cone said. James Cone would ask, "How can you do this?" James Cone said, "Well, James Cone said, as, as Holy Cone can say, well." I don't really have a problem because I don't want very much. I'd never wanted to be a bishop. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, if if Jesus did, never wanted to be a rabbi in Jerusalem, and so he could always he 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 resisted hanging around Jerusalem very much. And didn't never wanted to be king. He never wanted an empire. And if we are, if we resist the temptation toward empire, we can do this. Uh-huh. The problem is when we start thinking about, well, let's see, how am I going to get from where I am to retirement? Where's the pension plan? Uh, how much do I have in, this, in, in, this, in the 401k? Or how much does the church have in the capital campaign? Or how much do we have in the reserve fund? Or how much does the school have in the endowment? Uh, And when we start focusing on those things, that's when we begin to, to, to become less prophetic and more Constantinian because we become captive to our wants. 
yeah. as opposed as opposed to being co-laborers with what God wants. You know, I'm, and that's 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 what I kind of keep reminding myself. Wendell, uh, you can do this if you stop if if you don't think about if you don't think so hard about tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. If you think about the God has given you light for the day, given you light on the issues of the day, and given you a voice to speak to those issues, and do that as faithfully as you can, with as much clarity as you can, and as humbly as you can, with the same honesty that you would ask others give for you, and then let God worry about how big the congregation is going to be or whether or not you're going to have the endowment for the seminary or for the school or whether or not you're going to have the college fund. Now, I think that's our, that's, that's our real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think like that really resonates with, the like my personal story where for me it wasn't even just that I couldn't be prophetic before when I felt like I needed to have that full-time church job somewhere but it was that I felt like I couldn't even ask the right questions or didn't even know what questions to ask because I wasn't free from that Constantinian idol and when you realize that God's got this I mean, it's not it's not being simply simplistic. It's it's being truthful. If you realize that, as my mother used to say, "Worry never helped the cause; otherwise, the world would be better." <laughs> uh, if you realize, as Jesus said, you, know, you can't add a single day to your life. Or to paraphrase, you can't add a single cent to your wealth by worrying about how much you have. You gotta live for the love and justice of imperatives of God and do that. And God will make the the economy of God works if we work to do the just will of God. Mm-hmm. But the economy of God cannot be gained by our worry. And what I've found is that when I stopped worrying of whether or not whether or not I needed to try to move from one church to the next, but started trying to be faithful to the light that God given me. I, I had a, a piece about what I was doing and I had a clarity in what I was writing. Even though I find myself being very much on the outs of many of the black preachers that I know, not only in Arkansas, but around the country. You know, I'm a black, cisgender, welcoming, affirming woman, embracing in ministry, 
anti-war, anti-capital punishment, uh, anti-racist, and openly skeptical person towards traditional notions of law enforcement, preacher in the Bible Belt South. Mm -hmm. That that's not a that's not a recipe for getting a big church. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a recipe for getting uh getting picked up by big religious uh journals, evangelical journals. Christianity today doesn't want you. Mm -hmm. Doesn't want a, a black preacher who writes from that perspective. Yeah. Uh you know, Christian century doesn't want you to write too much from that from that perspective because uh they want to make sure they get their keep their their readership. They can have one or two articles about that two or three times a, you know, <laughs> a quarter, but not not very much. It's Constantinianism again. It's Constantinianism again. I mean, that's why that's why Cornel West couldn't stay at Harvard. You know, yeah. Harvard won Cornel West, uh, but as C. Eric Lincoln wrote about King uh, and black preachers, the white politicians and white religions love to pimp King's prestige, but questioned his relevance. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the thing that I think we need to be careful of, that people will pimp our prestige as followers of Jesus, pimp our prophetic prestige, but question the relevance of our witness and our insights. Yeah. You know, pe people love Barack Obama And never noticed that Barack Obama never would have become known but for the prophetic inspiration and challenge of Jeremiah Wright. And people ignore the fact Barack Obama ditched Jeremiah Wright as soon as he launched his campaign for president and has spent his entire presidential career denigrating the prophetic messages that Jeremiah Wright speaks to. Yeah. And so that Constantinian devotion. Barack Obama is example of Constantinian politics. And we have people in the faith who still like Constantinian politics and don't understand that you cannot be in love with Constantinian politics and have a prophetic faith. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the Barack Obama presidency, it was like it it helped people feel that they had permission not to see themselves as racist. But then they were obviously come 2016 unwilling to actually deal with the, you know, the underlying racist systems and everything. Yeah, how can you go from Barack Obama and believe that you have voted for Barack Obama because you're not racist, and then you 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 vote into office a man who has been a career racist, yeah, personally, personally, 
professionally and commercially and politically. Uh, and, 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 and then in 2020, 84% of evangelicals go with this guy. Uh, so, you know. And if you point that, that, that out, they say, well, not all evangelicals. Yeah, well, the truth of the matter is you don't have Barack Obama, you, you, don't, have, you don't have Donald Trump if evangelicals don't support him. Yeah. You don't, you don't have, you don't have Donald Trump's presidency in 2016. And you don't have the insurrection in 2021. And you don't have Donald Trump still being a force in the Republican Party. If evangelicals were not in lockstep with the racist, imperialistic, nationalistic, capitalistic, and neo-fascist messages of Donald Trump. White evangelicals have embraced that. And you don't, otherwise, you don't have that. And they've embraced it because they don't want to have the notion of white supremacy being displaced by a by an ethos that is not patriarchal that where that embraces the the agency of women and girls to act independently of the so-called headship the paternalism of men and believes that people of color have not only the right to liberty, but have a right to have their perspectives on faith and public policy, not only considered, but tried. I mean, we've dealt with couple of hundred years of imperialism and capitalism and racism. Let's, how, how did John Lennon say, let's, can we give peace a chance? Yeah. And even longer for Constantinianism. Yeah, even longer for Constantinianism. Can we give peace a chance? I mean, we, we, we have seen what religious nationalism does. Can we see what inclusion will do? Mm-hmm. And isn't that what isn't isn't that what the religion of Jesus involved? Isn't that why Constantine basically decided I've got to co-opt this religion because I cannot conquer it? I tried to persecute it to hell, and I couldn't. I couldn't kill them. I couldn't torture them to death. I've got to come. I've got to co-opt them. And so the. Constantinian, Constantine basically decided if I cannot conquer the religion of Jesus, I will co-opt it. And the people of the organized religion were just so happy to be to move from the persecuted to the empowered that they did not realize that they'd made a Faustian deal. Yeah. I'm probably wasting your time, brother. 
Oh, no, you're not. This has been really good. It's been really helpful. I'm, I feel like I'm trying to, um, I want to write from a place of like, um, a, a contemplative presence of feeling home and who I am and my relationship with my neighbor. Um, but also having this liberative anger within me as well. And I think this conversation has been really helpful for helping me navigate those two. I tell you what's really been helping me. I am really helped by Alan Buzak. I don't know if you've read very much of what he's written. Mm -mm. Alan Buzak, South African theologian, liberation theologian. Alan is my friend, uh, my brother. Uh, I refer to Dare We Speak of Hope, uh, his book. He has another book that was written recently, uh, Pharaohs on Both Sides of the Blood Red Waters. I strongly recommend you read that because he writes you, 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 the anger, mm -hmm. but also the contemplative side of this. He and he holds it in, in, in great. And and you you're familiar with Walter Brueggemann. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Brueggemann writes the same kind of way. Uh, but Brueggemann and Buzak have really been helpful to me. I, I, I find, you know, I've, I've, I've got, I just finished reading uh, Miguel de la Torre's Decolonizing Christianity. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that one? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, the, uh, the subtitle is worth Becoming Badass Believers. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'll it's pick a, those it, up. It, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, I cuss a little bit, okay? Yeah, and, you're fine. And and uh, Miguel de la Torre in this book coins a Rastafarian term. Shitstem. <laughs> shitstem. And mentions the shitstems of mass incarceration, the shitstem of criminal crime, uh, criminal justice. Uh, and I, I read these books from these people and they help me. So I, I suggest you get to that. And then you probably have read Oprah Hendrix's The Politics of Jesus. I haven't read that one, no. I, I would encourage you to read Oprah Hendrix's The Politics of Jesus. Okay. Because, because it, 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 opens, it opens up the the ethics of the religion of Jesus in a very good and accessible way and allows you to be in touch with both the anger and the courage. Yeah, that really helps. I'll definitely pick those up. 
Joel Goza has written God's Unholy Ghosts. Uh, and Joel Goza's book on that is, is, is wonderful. And then the other, the other thing that I, uh, that I have, uh, have been, I, I, I keep, I keep a testament of hope behind me, which is the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. Because I have to remind myself that part of my job is to, is to remind people that King did more than say, I have a dream. <laughs> And and he and and his I have a dream speech was in 1963. He wrote a whole lot between 63 and 68. And if you read his stuff in 67, 68, most folks haven't read Where Do We Go From Here, which is his last book. Mm -hmm. They haven't read the they haven't read the posthumous the posthumous essay was written that they penned that was published rather, titled A Testament of Hope that was published in January of 69 in Playboy magazine, hmm. uh, of all places. Uh, Reading those things gets you and get, get gets gets me in a good spirit, where I can hold my anger and my hope, my anger and my courage, in balance, and I can write. Yeah. Uh, and I can write honestly and openly. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I, I have read. Some I have read some of your stuff and you do good stuff, man. Oh, you thanks. Stuff, okay? Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll, I'll have to work my way through your articles now, now that I've, now that I've had a conversation with you. So, but I really appreciate this conversation. This has been really, really helpful. So. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have taken so much of your time. I realize I, I, I rambled and I apologize. Oh, you're fine. I didn't want to interrupt you because it was so good. I just want to listen. So, but. I what appreciate can I pray it. For you for? What can I do for yeah, you? definitely. Well, I don't know if you just want to pray for uh, just to be present and courage, or have have courage in, in the writing. That'd be cool. Let's do that. God of hope and God of anger and God of courage and God of grace, give us the assurance that as you have been with prophetic people in every age, you're with us. I thank you for Rick. I thank you for Laura and the light you have given each of them. And I pray for Rick and Laura as they write from the light you've given them, that they trust that light in their lives to illuminate not only themselves, but illuminate the world around them so that they can write, speak, present truth clearly, honestly, humbly, prophetically. I pray for them in their personal, in their domestic, in their physical, and in their professional lives. 
help us to trust you even when we cannot trace you. When, when, I, when we do not know which way we're going, help us to trust you in the darkness. And in this strange time in which we live, help us to trust your spirit as she wrestles with us and prods us and pushes us into uncommonly deep and sometimes turbulent waters and places where we encounter and write with anger, with courage, with love, trusting your hope. I pray for Rick and his family, for Laura and her family, and thank you for the work you've given them and for the work that they do at BNG. Forgive us, we pray for the areas in our lives when we have come short of what we should be. And forgive, we pray, our timidity. Thank you for pushing us to the deep end of the pool where we can not touch bottom. We must trust your spirit us deeper and farther out into your will. Ask these things in the name of Jesus who has shown us what you are like and what you would have us become. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, brother. God be yep. with you. Yep, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that it is living and has crafted bad news in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. So it all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. Your notion of self and others, and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to the opening podcast with Rick Pitcock. The opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpitcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pitcock.